Hello everyone, I'm Paul Botts, the CEO and founder of Good Leadership Enterprises. And I'm Rachel Uslick from Twin Cities Orthopedics. Welcome to the Goodness Pays Leadership Podcast. We are recording this in the Aspiration Suite of our offices in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where we coach leaders and their teams how to grow their businesses with goodness. In short, our team coaches your team through the transformations to the next level of performance. Hey, Rachel, you're a friend of this firm, but you're new to the Goodness Pays Leadership Podcast. So will you tell everybody how you and I are connected? Yeah, Paul's team has been working with uh, Twin Cities Orthopedics on our leadership development program over the past couple of years and a fond follower of our breakfast at Good Leadership. So today we're featuring the appearance of Dr. Nicole Lavoie from the Good Leadership Breakfast that happened just today. It's a monthly leadership development event that Paul started back in 2009, and today was a really good one. I was really impressed with her ability to carry the room with a really equitable message. Yeah, about you know, and she she just grabbed the stage in ways that I wish every speaker would do. I've been doing this. This was our 79th breakfast this morning. And wow. as I drove away, I was reflecting that she's probably a top five speaker. So I probably should say um, what the Good Leadership Breakfast is about and what do we mean by goodness. So the Good Leadership Breakfast is a venue where we invite speakers to share their belief system of how goodness pays in their leadership and in their organizations. Um, But that begs the question, what do we mean by goodness? Goodness is that place where people thrive together in a culture of encouragement, accountability, and positive teamwork. So anytime we find someone, whether they're in a corporation or a small business or like in academia, when they're actually really making the world a better place where people are thriving because of their energy, we're really, really interested in those people as speakers. And Nicole Lavoie was absolutely perfect this morning. So for our first-time listeners, the strategy of this episode is what we call Monday Morning Quarterback. In other words, we'll play some of the highlights of Nicole's talk this morning and share our observations, even criticisms, based on our experience as executive coaches. What I liked about Nicole's personal story is how she's following her passions from a really young age. So let's get started with how she opened her talk. So 1979 literally was my ticket to ride. I was 10, and it shaped the arc of my life and my career. There were four things that happened in 1979, not just that my family moved from Missouri to Minnesota when my father took an assistant professor job at St. Cloud State, and not just that I you know, went to double digits from 9 to 10. But there were four things that happened, maybe ironically and coincidentally related to sport, that shaped my passion for fairness, my fight for people to have the opportunity to do what they love and what they're good at, and equity, and to fight for what's right and just. So the first thing that happened, when I I moved from Missouri, I played softball and soccer in an all-girls league. When I moved to St. Cloud, Minnesota, there was neither. So being a softball player and I was a pitcher, I thought, well, I'll just join Little League. So I went to Little League, I showed up, I was the only girl. I thought, well, that's all right. And the coach was sort of looking at me sideways, and then he said, well, what position do you play? And I said, well, I pitch. And he looked at me and said, girls don't pitch. How about right field? 
So out I went. I never touched the ball the whole time I was there. And I left with hot tears in my eyes and just a feel of, you know, I was not raised to be told that I couldn't do something. Oh, I was mad. And I never went back. So that was the first story. Second story, so now it's the fall and it's football season. And I'm in fifth grade, my new elementary school, Lincoln, which we finally called Stinkin' Lincoln. <laughs> and I'm going to play flag football. It was a co-ed. We had a great team of, you know, fifth graders. And, you know, in fifth grade, you're all about the same size, the boys and the girls developmentally. So it was awesome. And I wanted to be quarterback. Well, I was assigned to be left tackle. I know, and you're thinking, you're not really a left tackle material. Um, but I was really probably the same size then as I am now. So I was a pretty good left tackle. I took it very seriously. Okay, so I probably need to cut in and explain that she is a very small woman. <laughs> <laughs> She's very athletic, but she is a very small woman. And so you get that picture in your head. Fiercely competitive, but certainly not very much like a left tackle. And that was such a fun experience of feeling included and valued and playing with the boys. And we were all equals. The third thing that happened, so football season ends, now it's basketball season and I want to play basketball. Well, I'm Ted, there's no girls team. It's 1979. And I thought, okay, well, okay, I'll try out for the boys team, which I did with one other girl, Mary Beth Becker and I. We, we tried out and we both made the boys team. So the next morning, I'm sitting in class, and in walks someone with a pink slip, and um, I got a note to go to the principal's office. And I thought, oh, well, this will be fun. The principal's going to congratulate me for making the team. And so down I went. I'm all skippity-doo, and I walk in the door, and he looks at me, and he says, sit down, young lady. I thought, oh, I'm in trouble. And he... <laughs> He said, I hear you've made the boys basketball team. And I said, yeah, it's really exciting. Our first practice is tonight. He said, well, <clears throat> wouldn't you rather like to do ballet or join the Girl Scouts? Oh my and I thought, well, I'm all, and I, this is literally what I said. Well, I'm already in the Girl Scouts and ballet's not my thing and I want to play basketball. Well, that was not the answer he wanted. And I didn't know then, but I certainly know now that because of Title IX, which was passed in 1972, that made gender discrimination in our schools illegal, that what was afforded to the boys had to be afforded to the girls, including sport, he had to let me play basketball. Now, what I didn't know is that some parents of the boys who got displaced were calling him and wondering why their boys did not get the opportunity to play, and the girls did. The fourth thing that happened was now basketball season's over, it's spring, so I can't play soccer, and there was a tennis court across the street from my house. And so I started playing tennis with the neighborhood kids, the boys and the girls, we would all play, and I got pretty good. And the boys would, when they needed a fourth for doubles, they'd come knock on the door, and they'd say, hey, can you play? And I thought, wow, I'm getting the opportunity to play with the boys. Well, what I realized later is that they really wanted to try to ace me every time they served and took every opportunity to pelt me with a volley or an overhead. 
There were many times I left with, you know, giant welts and tears in my eyes, and I got resolved that I was gonna get really good at tennis, and someday I would be better than all of them because they were not treating me as an equal, and they did not respect that I love tennis just as much as them. So those four things, all in 1979, all around sport and fairness and opportunity and equality and being respected for doing something that you love and that you're passionate about, really solidified my arc of my life and my career. Okay, Rachel, we need to be honest about one thing. You had Dr. Lavoie, Nicole, as one of your professors in college, right? I did. Okay, so now you're sitting there many, many years later. What was going on in your mind when you heard this story from her? You know, I I felt like I was back in college again, walking into class the same way she did, uh, getting people excited about the psychology and sociology of sport Mm -hmm. and the importance of women in that dynamic. It was powerful. Yeah. It was so cool to sit back and go... Wow, 10 years ago, that's what I was listening. But at the same time, reflecting on, we're having the same conversation 10 years later. Mm-hmm. Well, I, um, I listened to the beginning of this speech, um, not as an executive coach and not as the founder of The Breakfast, but as a father. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you what, she's got fire in her. Yes. When she used these phrase, you know, hot tears in my eyes, mm-hmm. I thought, wow, okay, I've seen those before. And also just that look on her face when she said, you know, I'm going to beat those boys someday. I was like, oh my gosh, and I know what's coming. And she, don't, boy, she did. So, uh, you know, honestly, the father in me felt the injustice and I was pissed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, she continues to be articulate and intense. So let's just go right on to how she describes her high school and college time. So in high school, you know, I was a classic three-sport athlete. I also was in the band. I was writing for the sports section of the school newspaper. And the band director said, well, you can either do band. I played the saxophone, alto saxophone. Or you could, you know, be in tennis. So you pick. So I picked tennis. So I had to quit band. Now, as I'm leaving high school, I wanted to be a sport journalist because I liked sport and I liked to write, and I'm looking at schools for journalism, and I was told more than once, women are not sport journalists because you'll never see your family, and it's a really demanding schedule, and there's no women. I thought, oh, that's strange. So I didn't do that. I ended up at Gustavus, which really shaped my life, who I am, and what I do. I got to play tennis there for four years, and my junior year, we won a national championship. But more importantly, it proved to me that I was better than those boys in the park. (laughs) (laughs) So after Gustavus, I mean, I got to travel all over the country, doing what I love, playing with my teammates, learning about myself, Growing up, tennis really shaped my life. Sport shaped my life. It made me who I am today. And as I was leaving Gus Davis, I really didn't know what I wanted to do because I had done an internship at Johnson & Johnson World Headquarters for corporate fitness, and I hated it. And I thought, now what? It's my senior year. I don't have a career path. And I was coaching in the summers, and I loved it. And I was like, okay, now what do you love? Well, I love sport, and I love coaching. Now, you have to know that I grew up, both my parents were teachers. 
And growing up, I'm like, I'm never gonna teach. You don't make any money and it's not sexy. And you know, it's, you know, I wanted a power suit and a leather briefcase and I wanted a real job. So as I'm thinking, like, hey, what do I like? I like to coach. All right, what is it about that I like to coach? Well, I like to teach. Dang it! <laughs> so I learned that I like to teach through sport, that I love seeing young people grow and know themselves and who they are and become strong and confident through their sport experiences. So I started coaching. So as a young coach, I thought, well, I'll merge my love of travel and tennis. And so I applied for a job in this big fancy sport tennis academy where you would travel the world and, and get to coach tennis at these fancy clubs and you'd rotate every six months. And I thought, you can get paid for that? This is great. So I went down, I had a we weekend long interview and it was me and um, about 50 men and all male staff. And it's on-court, off-court interviews. It was very intense. And the, one of the last things we got to do is you got to sit down with the guy who owned the company and his staff and ask questions. And so I had a lot of questions. And not surprisingly, I, um, you know, I'm just noticing there's not a lot of women on your staff. So why don't you have more women on staff? <laughs> not the right question to ask. <laughs> Um, he looked at me and he said, young lady, the times that I've hired women in the past, I train them up and I give them all this training and then they meet some guy and they get married and they have a baby and they never come back and I'm just wasting my money. And I thought, hmm. And in my head I'm thinking, I don't think I'm going to get this job <laughs> offer and I don't think this is a good fit for me. Well, I didn't get the offer, but that's okay. Okay, so at this point, now I'm listening as a leader and as an executive coach. And thinking back on some of the most powerful leaders I know, many of them have a basic injustice, a sense of violating someone's fairness as the motivator for them to step up and be a much better leader, a good leader who makes things better for lots of people. And you can just see this building in her. Mm -hmm. And even people who don't know anything about the Tucker Center where she's the director, we'll learn about that in a minute, and don't really know about the impact that she's gone on to make after those moments, you can feel this sense of injustice building inside of her, not in a way that was making her angry, but that was propelling her to something really awesome. Mm -hmm. That's what was going on in my mind. How about you? Yeah, I think the, the statement that she said, I had to get resolve after being attempted to be broken. Mm -hmm. Like, you see that time and time again in her story year after year of she's going to get resolved, not in revenge, mm -hmm. but in conquering something to be fair and equitable. Maybe the most obvious thing here too, is that I'm not a woman. Sure. I have two daughters. I employ a lot of women and, but I don't really know what that's like. Mm -hmm. And I really made me think deeper about, okay, where, where is that, where can that empathy come from me? Mm -hmm. So I was really grateful of just about how articulate she was. She gets even more intense about this as we go forward. Mm -hmm. So let's just keep listening. Now, after that, you know, when one door closes, one opens. I got the opportunity to apply to be the head tennis coach at Wellesley College, an all women's college out in Boston. 
So little Mary from the Prairie in St. Cloud, Minnesota goes all the way out to the East Coast to coach at this fancy, elite, all-women's college, one of the best in the country, and that was transformational because I saw the positive benefits that these young women got for being in that environment and being on our team and growing into these confident, strong, amazing change makers in the world. And I thought, I want to do this, not just one team at a time. I want to do this for lots of girls and women. And right about that time where I had this realization, the Tucker Center for Research on Girls and Women in Sport at the University of Minnesota opened its doors. And our founder and first director, Dr. Mary Jo Kane, uh, opened the Tucker Center. And I thought, I'm going back to Minnesota, and I'm going to study in the Tucker Center because I want to empower young girls and women in and through sport as I had experienced. It had given me so much. I wanted to fight for opportunity. I wanted to fight for women to do what they love and what they're good at. I wanted them to be treated equitably. And so I went back and I got my doctorate in the Tucker Center. And when I was working on my doctorate, I would sit in the basement of Cook Hall and I would dream. I would just think, you know, someday my dream goal, that one in the future, I want to work in the Tucker Center. And 25 years later, I am now the director. Okay, you spent a lot of time in Cook Hall, didn't you? I did. Mm-hmm. I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a pretty, a pretty profound building on the campus, right next to the rec center, and surrounded by all the boys' sports facilities. Absolutely, on a Division One prominent campus, uh-huh. and to have a female saying, "I'm going to lead the Tucker Center." Yeah. That's a, that's a big statement. Yeah, I agree. And it, it just also sparks for me the sort of the be careful what you wish for idea for sure. of aspirations. And, you know, we, we like to think about uh, encouraging our leaders to have breakthrough ideas, things that if that happens, it's going to change not only their lives, but the lives of other people. And I just think she is absolutely a picture of an aspirational leader from way back in 1979 to that basic injustice on the playground through becoming one of the world's most authoritative leaders uh, on her subject, which I just think is amazingly inspiring. Mm -hmm. The next section of her speech gets quite a bit more intense and a lot more serious because she's talking about the value of her work. So let's let this roll. The Tucker Center, for those of you who don't know what it is, the Tucker Center for Research on Girls and Women in Sport, is housed in the School of Kinesiology at the University of Minnesota. At the time when it was founded 27 years ago, It was the first and only research center of its kind in the entire world dedicated to the study and making a difference in the lives of girls and women through sport. We're not the only anymore. We have colleagues around the world who have modeled similar research centers off of the Tucker Center. But what we do is we use data to create social change for girls and women in sport to start dialogue, to educate, to argue for equity, to stimulate decision makers to make a difference, to commit, to be allies, to make change. Because what we know from the data 
is we have a lot of work to do. So we do research in three areas. First of all, we do it in uh, participation for girls and women in sport. What we know from Title IX in 1972, one in 27 girls played sport. Today, it's about one in two and a half. So we'll just round up, one in three, okay? Great, great progress. However, the half empty is that boys and men still outnumber girls and women, almost five to three. Meaning that girls and women have less opportunity to play sport and we know when they play sport and they're physically active, it leads to a lot of positive benefits. Health, psychosocial, social, even spiritual, academic. And women that play sport are more likely to achieve and get paid more in male-dominated industries. There's a great stat that came from Ernst & Young that 92% of C-suite women in Fortune 500 companies played sport. Now as a researcher, that is not coincidental. So playing sport leads to a lot of positive developmental and health benefits for girls and women. That opportunity is critical. So we do research around that. The second thing that we do is we get data that shows that female athletes in women's sport is not shown very often in the sport media. And this is important because who and what we see tells us who and what is valued in society. Girls and women make up 43% of all athletes. They get 4% of sport media coverage. Four. It's disproportionate and it doesn't reflect the reality of girls' sport participation. And when they are pictured, they're often pictured in ways that minimize their athletic competence and highlight their femininity and their heterosexuality. Look, I'm cute and I'm sexy. Not that I'm a great athlete. And why does that matter? Not only who and what we see is valued, but how we see them, how they show up, tells young girls in our society that it's more important what you look like than what your body can do. And when girls are sexualized, even in a context like sport, which is supposed to provide a valuable counterweight to all the negativity in society that girls are bombarded with, even in sport, we have a long way to go. And also, when we see females and female athletes in particular sexualized, they have these amazing bodies that are athletically gifted. It also tells boys and men that female bodies are sexual objects to be desired. It does not increase interest in and respect for women's sport. Okay, so as a man, I was sitting up there thinking she's 100% right, but wow, is she well rehearsed at that? And I couldn't think of what man in our society could stand on that stage and say those exact same things. Uh, that was, that's about as intense as it ever gets at the Good Leadership Breakfast. So what were you thinking, Rachel? I was thinking how relatable the experiences of women in sport are translated into women in business. Mm-hmm. And 
they're so synonymous of what you experience on both sides. Mm -hmm. Who are your coaches? Who are your leaders? Mm -hmm. What exposure do you get? And how much value is there in Mm -hmm. that? In sport, Mm -hmm. do you get, you know, the fancy field with a great manicured outfield Mm -hmm. and good dirt? Do you get the same thing in the business world? I don't, it, who else to your point could say that on stage as a man? Yeah. And I was also processing it through the women in my life. My, my wife was a high school athlete. Uh, one of my daughters was a high school athlete. One of my other daughters was a dancer. And I know she danced as hard as the other one played soccer. And I'm thinking to myself, where does dance fit in there? Because it's pretty darn athletic, but I don't think that's probably what she studies. So, I mean, that, who knows whether that makes any sense or not, but I do know that there's a lot of hard work and stick to and hard lessons and things like that and social climates that people get when they join a team, whether it's a dance team or right. a sports team. Right. It makes me think about how I raised my little girls into what is the future ahead? How do you build that grit to give them the same perspective that Dr. DeLavoie has? Tell us again how old your girls are. Five and three. Fabulous. Yeah. Fabulous. Okay, so she has one other comment to make about her work, and I really enjoyed this section. The third thing that we do is we get data to help change the occupational landscape for women leaders in sport. This is my wheelhouse. This is what I do most often in my work. I told you post-Title IX, we have one in three girls playing sport. In 1972, 90% of girls and women were coached by women. 90%. Today, even with record numbers of girls and women playing sport, 43% of college athletes are coached by women. So it's gone down. And it's even lower at the high school and youth levels. Why does this matter? I get this question a lot. So what? So you have a lack of female coaches. Why? You know, we just want the best coach. Right. I get that. But when you say we want the best coach, what you really mean is you want a man. Because the competencies that are associated with coaching are also associated with men and masculinity, being confident and loud and assertive and taking up space and being a leader. Right? We know that women coaches matter. Same sex and same identity role models matter to girls just as much as they do for boys. And most all boys, I would say 100%, get a male coaching role model that they look up to, that has influenced their life. A lot of girls right now, they don't get a female coach. They don't get that opportunity. I never had a female coach, not once. I don't know what that would feel like. So I feel really passionately about changing the occupational landscape for women in sport because many of them don't feel safe, valued, or supported. Okay, so I said I enjoyed this section. Let me explain why. I am absolutely fascinated. I'm wondering, what's up with that? That it went from 90% down to 43%. What, what is it about our system, our society, that women used to coach women and now don't coach women? I would have thought it was, would have been the other way around. I still, this is the third time I've listened to this now today, and my mind is still in a pretzel about this. What are you thinking? I'm, I'm in the same boat. I'm thinking why I used to coach girls after graduating and, and in the beginning of my career, and I don't now, and I have two little girls that I probably should coach, and I have never really reflected on why before. 
course, Dr. Lavoie is stimulating that thought again. Um, but why is that a global thing? It, it's, it's a strong nugget to have to think about if, if, if we want to continue to develop these young women. To her point, they need role models. And I, I was, I, my heart sunk when Nicole Lavoie said, I've never had a woman coach. Same. What's fascinating Same. about me is that I've had two. I had a female tennis coach, and now I'm, my golf pro is a phenomenal woman golf pro and she's one of the best women golfers in the world over the age of 60 and I find her style of how she communicates with me and how she's so encouraging to be phenomenal right and so I'm going wow I wish I I need to introduce Nicole to my golf coach yes Mm -hmm. yes she has a very powerful close let's listen to that and then we can comment on our way home so at the Tucker Center in my current role you can see that that 10 year old in 1979, and all those experiences that shaped the arc of my career, is I get the opportunity to fight for fairness for all girls and women in sport around the world. I care very deeply about this. Girls deserve the opportunity to do what they love, to be given equitable resources, to be treated fairly and feel valued and supported in their workplaces. Because what's good for girls and women is good for everybody. Okay, so there's always a phrase that pays in every one of these speeches. And in in this context, I think it's girls deserve the opportunity to do what they love. Duh. At least that's how I see it. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe there are still people out there that don't see it that way. But around here, in the context of goodness, the definition is when people thrive together. And so the opposite of that would be obstructionist and making sure that people don't have the opportunity to do what they love. And I just can't even wrap my head around that. Mm -hmm. What are you thinking now? Yeah, I'm I'm really trying to to grasp the idea of equality in the business sector and, and how do you find relativity in sport Mm -hmm. to that, to build a dynamic of collaboration in, in daily work. And how do we continue to foster that in our youth to move it faster than it is? Yeah. If nothing else, she is very articulate in saying we have, we made a lot of progress, but we have so much progress to make. And so I know I'm going to be more, much more keenly aware of, of that plight and think about what I can do to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. Okay, Rachel, so one specific feature of this podcast series is to help identify what we call actionable insights. That's the carpe diem moments of what you intend to do differently in your leadership because of this discussion. So can you share your carpe diem insight from this particular podcast? I need to start coaching my girls. Yeah. Get involved. And that means you might have to change a few things in how things work at the office in order to make space for that, right? Right. But I think that's a great role modeling. Yeah, absolutely. Your oldest is five years old. Yeah. And playing any sports yet? Oh, yeah. She's dancer, hockey, lacrosse, gymnastics. Can't, I can't do dance and gymnastics, but I'll try and lace up some skates yeah. and see if I can get on the ice. Okay, we'll follow up with you and ask you how that's going. Um, <laughs> so the one thing for me is I'm going to continue to be active in the lives of my daughters who are young women. They're mm-hmm. both getting in the professional world. And I'm going to help them and coach them because that's what I do. I'm an executive coach. And if they want my help, I'm going to help them create their own space mm-hmm. and negotiate for what they need to be paid. 
Yeah. Because I, th- I think we can, here around good leadership, we can speak with authority. We are mostly women here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's works. Mm-hmm. They're strong women. They have strong voices. They shape how I think and how I run the business every single day. I, in many ways, I don't even really understand this concept because it's so different here. Right. So you know what? I, I consider it a real joy to have really been a part of the sort of the intense and focused style of Nicole Lavoie today. It was really, really inspiring. Yeah. Thank you, Paul, for inviting me to be a part of your podcast. I am so grateful for this opportunity. Well, you're absolutely welcome. You did a really good job for your first podcast. Thank you. So what is the final phrase that we want everyone to remember when they spend time with us at the Goodness Pays Leadership Podcast? Well, of course, goodness pays. Yep. And from Nicole? Goodness pays. Yes, and it's goodness pays. So from our listening audience, thank you so much for investing the time, whether you're exercising or driving or on an airplane, whatever. We appreciate your making the space for us to learn and develop your sense of how goodness pays in your leadership. We'll talk to you again soon.